Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest on the show is Chris Garabedian. Garabedian is best known for his controversial stint as CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Sarepta Therapeutics, the developer of treatments for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Whatever you may think of his tenure there, and the FDA's decision to approve Teplersen on a slim read of clinical trial evidence, there is no denying that Sarepta got into that position because Garabedian saved the company. When he started there in 2011, it was called AVI Biopharma. It was running out of cash and left for dead. I know because that's when I first interviewed him and wrote about the company. You can see a link to the article in a show summary on TimmermanReport.com. Now, rather than repeat the history of Sarepta, which has been pretty well documented, I asked Garabedian in this interview to talk more about his early career coming up on the business side of biotech. He learned the ropes in market research and then joined Abbott and then got more serious about biotech in a series of senior positions at Gilead Sciences and Celgene. Garabedian has developed some interesting beliefs along the way on how the R&D side of the house can work with the business side. Those beliefs culminate in a new entity he started a couple years ago called Zontogeny. It's sort of like a small venture capital firm aimed at scientific entrepreneurs who need more oomph than they can get from a small friends and family financing round, but don't need a full-blown $50 million Series A round from the likes of the big VC firms. He calls it the middle market. You can hear him describe it. Now, before we get started, I want to thank everyone for listening to The Long Run. And if you enjoy listening to these in-depth interviews, you'll love reading Timmerman Report, my subscription publication. This is where you can read in-depth features and focused research articles you won't find anywhere else. Readers have told me over and over that it helps them think about trends, identify new investment opportunities, and maybe even find a promising new place to work. You can subscribe to Timmerman Report for $149 a year per person and expect two to three in-depth articles per week. Discounts are available for academic institutions and for corporate groups that obtain group sharing licenses. For details, ask me at luke at timmermanreport.com. Now join me and Chris Garabedian for The Long Run. Welcome, Chris Garabedian. Thanks for joining me on The Long Run. It's a pleasure, Luke. So, Chris, I know you've heard a few of these shows, and you know that I like to start out with a little bit on the person, going all the way back to their origins. So, uh, before we get into the nitty-gritty of what you're doing today in business, uh, in the biotech business. So, can you just start me out? Where were you born and raised? Yeah, I was born and raised in the uh, Maryland area, outside of Washington, D.C., um, I'd say, you know, uh, uh, largely middle class. Uh, you know, my dad was a uh, government uh, employee. He actually uh, spent his entire career uh, with the same uh, government uh, agency, the administrative office of the judicial branch of the government and worked his way up from a clerk typist to the highest level before presidential appointment. So um, I, I guess he instilled a, a strong work ethic and uh uh, some level of uh, you know commitment to what you uh, you know what you decide to do, um, but yeah, I grew up in the Maryland area, and uh, uh, 
yeah, just a, a pretty uneventful uh, upbringing. Interesting. So what about your mom? What did she do? She was a homemaker and she started to um, do administrative work, I think, when I entered, uh, you know, um, I guess late elementary school, uh, you know, middle school area. And I was the youngest of four boys. And so uh, my, you know, uh, brothers were, um, you know, a bit, a bit older than, my, than me, uh, 10 years, nine years and six years. So by the time I entered high school, all my brothers were pretty much out of the house. And, uh, you know, so I, I had some distance between me and my uh, three older brothers. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, um, in preparing for the interview, you sent me an article um, from uh, an ethnic newsletter, uh, Armenian newsletter, and, and it said that both of your parents are of, uh, both sides of the family are of Armenian descent, um, and that your pa- grandparents actually fled the Armenian genocide. And is that how they ended up coming to the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. My, my grandparents were um, probably preteen or maybe early teens uh, when they came uh, over. So, so my parents were born here. I'm second generation American. Uh, but yeah, but you know, my, my parents knew the language. Obviously, um, uh, they you know the, the the ethnic communities were pretty close going back to you know the 50s, if you will. They um, the, you know the families uh, you know connected my mom and dad, and they uh, got married. I think it was 1957. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I grew up, uh, kind of, you know, uh, American, if you will, with this Armenian, uh, heritage. Uh, I, I didn't really learn the language. Um, I think they gave up on me after they tried to, to teach my older brothers and it didn't take, um, but it was only later in life that I came to appreciate kind of my ethnic roots. But, um, you know, I think when, when you're younger, you, you want to shed, uh, the, um, ethnic, you know, association. And so you, you know, my, my, my olive skin was a little darker than my, you know, classmates and you're always trying to, um, you know, to fit in. And so I, I pr- pretty much distanced myself, I think from my ethnicity as much as I could when I was younger and didn't come to appreciate, you know, kind of our, our backgrounds and histories until I was old. Huh. Now, why has this become more important to you as an adult? You know, I, I, I wouldn't say it, it's become more important, I think that I ignored it for a long time. And I think I, you know, uh, I appreciated um, the more people I interacted with who, you know, had some sense of pride of their, of their uh, background and maybe, you know, honoring their, their family and, you know, the, um, you know, the courage and the choices that were made that, that give us all those, those opportunities. And so, you know, it's more of an appreciation and more of a, you know, as I've always been one to want to understand the world better uh, never really focused that on myself and my heritage. So, and also, I, I, I'll be honest. I, I, I've been inspired by folks. Um, you know, Nubar Afayan, uh, who you know uh, founded Flagship and is well known in the biotech space. You know, he does a lot for the Armenian community, and he has a lot of ties uh, back to Armenia. And he's um, you know, donated his time and resources. And you know, since I moved to the Boston area, there's a much larger you know, Armenian, you know, population in the, in the Boston Watertown area specifically. And I, I've been kind of inspired by Newbar's uh, commitment. And, uh, you know, I don't think I'll ever achieve the, the level that he's provided for the Armenian community, but it's made me a little bit more aware and a little bit more uh, willing to kind of give back and, um, you know, uh, to, to, to join as part of that community. Yeah, well, that's interesting. And maybe it's just a function of becoming a little older and wiser um, <laughs> I, about yeah. um, how people don't um, do things all by themselves. <laughs> there, there are a lot of helping hands along the way. 
I think Nubar might even have a school named after him in the Armenian community that I've seen. I wouldn't be surprised. Yep. Coming back to school, what kind of school did you attend? You know, I, um, uh, I went to University of Maryland. Uh, I, again, I was raised not with a, um, you know, high expectation. I think we were all expected to go to college. Um, you know, it, I was not one of those kids that said, okay, which Ivy League are you going to apply to? And, you know, um, uh, I was a middling student. And I think not because of um, kind of inherent, you know, um, you know, cognitive abilities, but uh, I was not a disciplined student. Um, you know, through high school or through college. And, but I had this voracious, you know, um, appetite for reading and for learning about all sorts of, um, you know, areas of the world from, you know, psychology to sociology, to history, to, you know, women's studies to, I mean, I just wanted to learn about the world. And so I would often find myself, myself skipping classes in college to spend time in a, in a cafe reading books that had nothing to do with my, you know, my curriculum or getting a good grade in the class. And so, um, you know, I, I, I don't know that I have a good explanation for that, but I always had a thirst for knowledge and I always, uh, had an interest in learning about things, but I never was great at applying that in a, in a school setting. So you went to the local state school, university of Maryland. Yep. Yep. That's right. Not that far from home, I guess. Uh, yep. But you ended up majoring or getting your degree in marketing. How did that end up appealing to you? Yeah, you know, it was, you know, it was an easy choice of a major. You know, it was, uh, um, you know, I didn't consider myself uh, having an aptitude or expertise in in the sciences, uh, you know, at that time. And and I just thought, okay, you know, business uh, is a good way to kind of start one's career. And so, you know, I... Um, you know, it was just an easy choice and it seemed like a, you know, easier major. Again, I didn't have this strong drive. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm atypical. I didn't have that. Well, I was thinking about med school or, you know, yeah. and I finished my PhD. I mean, I, you know, it's just, that's not how I came into the industry. And so, um, what that did was it, it led me to move to Chicago, which was known as a big, you know, kind of marketing hub and had a lot of consumer products companies. And I thought, okay, this is where a you know, a, a marketing major goes to start, his, you know, uh, his or her career. And, um, and I, I ended up getting, uh, you know, some market research experience working for a consumer, consumer products market research. And, you know, I, again, ended up in a job that was probably higher than entry level. I learned a lot about quantitative, uh, you know, research methodologies and qualitative interviewing techniques. And uh, I ended up parlaying that early experience in consumer products, market research consulting, to getting a job in a market research consultant in the pharmaceutical space. And that was really what started my uh, career. Uh, and that was around 1991 that I joined what was called Migliara Kaplan Associates at the time. And they were one of the largest uh, custom market research consultants in the industry they were kind of creating a lot of waves. They, they since got bought, you know, years ago by NFO, a, a big company, national, national family opinion. But it was really where I cut my teeth on the industry of working on both quantitative and qualitative projects. So you, I learned very early on in my career how to ask questions, how to um, attack a data set and to synthesize it and analyze it and understood 
you know, before I looked at my first clinical trial, what statistical significance means and what, you know, uh, you know, you know, variation, you know, uh, uh, and, and standard deviations from the mean and also the qualitative interviewing techniques. How do you construct an interview with uh, an important person or an audience and get the most valuable information? So I actually early on in my career, I went to training for focus group moderation and interviewing techniques. So the combination of quantitative research methodologies um, and, and, you know, managing studies that did, you know, conjoint analysis or discrete choice models or, you know, uh, segmentation analyses coupled with the qualitative part of learning how to interview, you know, um, and at that time I was interviewing physicians about their prescribing decisions across a myriad of therapeutic categories. You start to understand what is the data that drives a physician to choose one product over another. So that's really where I started my kind of career in, in, in biopharma. Wow, it sounds like you got a lot of uh, on-the-job training. You got to learn a lot about the business side uh, and, and for a variety of clients. So a variety of different um, therapeutic areas, different competitive situations. Was one of these clients uh, Abbott? Well, no, interestingly, we, we had worked with, um, I think, 18 of the top 20 pharma companies at the time. Uh, one of my big clients was actually Syntex, uh, you know, which um, was almost biotech-like, uh, you know, based in the Bay Area, you know, um, and uh, they were dealing with Naproxen going off patent, and they had a generic strategy, and they had a Toradol, uh, oral, another pain reliever, and they were trying to figure out how to optimize their franchise. So we would do big strategic projects. I worked with BMS and uh, Merck, and I mean there were. I remember doing a um, uh, a, a a project for uh, 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 Astra Merck. I think it was with the proton pump inhibitors, and it was a regional project where I had to interview like every gastroenterologist in Ohio, okay, <laughs> to understand what drove their prescribing disease. So it was such a myriad. Um, but no, the Abbott opportunity came about because. Uh, I was at Migliara Kaplan for several years. The principals, uh, Joe Migliara, Harris Kaplan, were already starting to make, uh, uh, you know, leaning toward the idea that, hey, you, you can have a long career here, Chris, and you can help us sell these services. And, uh, you know, when we retire, right, you and, you know, a couple of the other folks, they were grooming to kind of take over the company. And, uh, and I just realized I was in my 20s and I'm like, you know, this is not what I want my career to be. And that's when I knew and I was drawn to going to, quote, the client side and to learn how things operate. And at the time, um, uh, it was a recruiter that called and said, hey, there's this guy who just came on board to lead market research at Abbott. Uh, his name was Paul Fontaine, who's now president of uh, Beringer Engelheim. Uh, and he said, you know, uh, he, he always has to live with these uh, newly minted MBAs who do a stint in the sales force, then come in to do a stint in market research and then go on to be an associate product manager. And he actually wants to hire somebody who's actually done market research for the industry. And so it was a, a prime opportunity for me to come in. And that was my, you know, quote, entree into big pharma. And because I had the background I did, I was quickly, you know, um, causing attention with a lot of the brand teams who wanted me on their teams to help them because I was doing all the positioning work and the, you know, how to differentiate the products and what data do we need, right, to differentiate ourselves from the competition. 
And uh, so they, they quickly realized they had a mindset for, you know, brand management and, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, managing products, right. And how to position. And Abbott was this in the same area of Chicago. So you didn't need to move. And this is a diversified company. So lots of different kinds of things that you could work on. Yeah. It's not important, but a short summary. I actually moved back to the Maryland area okay. where Migliara Kaplan was. And then I moved back to Chicago to, uh, to work for Abbott. But yeah, I, you know, I was at Abbott for about, um, four years, I think it was. And, and that's where I really learned uh, from market research, brand management, and more importantly, I moved into a new product development role where it was all about managing the pipeline and helping uh, create go-no-go decisions on what programs would move forward, what proof of concept data is going to be required. It was partnering with what they had at the time, venture heads for R&D for each therapeutic category. So I was managing um, a CNS and uh, cardiovascular, and we had some pain products uh, for you know new product development, both the emerging uh, pipeline coming out of preclinical and the clinical pipeline, and um, and that's when I started to get the itch to go to go to biotech. And how did you end up coming to biotech at Gilead? Yeah, well, this was um, 1996. I started getting a bunch of calls from recruiters, um, and it was really I think biotech was trying to find. Um, talent in pharma. And, and I literally got um, uh, calls to interview and I went through the full interview process with Genentech. At the time, this was pre-oncology Genentech. This was when Kirk Robb was the CEO, pre-Art Levinson as CEO. Uh, I got a call to uh, uh, come to Amgen and they were, um, for lack of a better word, fat and happy. They were profitable. They had so much money, so much value, and weren't sure what they were going to do for their for their future pipeline. And then Biogen, um, uh, pre-IDEC, they had uh, Avanex at the time, and they were preparing to launch Avanex. And so I interviewed with Genentech, Biogen, Amgen, and for different reasons for each company, you know, Biogen didn't have much of a pipeline, and I was worried about after this launch what it was going to look like as a career. Uh, Amgen didn't have a good coherency about their long-term vision and exactly what my role was going to be and how it could evolve. Genentech was known more as a sales, like you know, um, you know, you know, you know, hard-charging sales environment, and didn't really value at that time you know, strategy and marketing and positioning. And so I said, you know what, Abbott's going pretty well. I'm going to stay at Abbott. And then a few months later, I got a call uh, from a recruiter about a company called Gilead. And I had never heard of them. I didn't have a particular, uh, you know, experience in infectious disease um, and uh, had a little bit of knowledge because Abbott was in that space. And, uh, and I decided, okay, I'm going to fly out there. And, uh, uh, it was February uh, 2000, I'm sorry, February 1997, and it was one of those like below freezing with the wind chill <laughs> days in Chicago, and I remember flying out there, and it was like paradise. I mean, it was like 80 degrees, and it was just looked like the perfect day, but, but more important than all that, it was on a Friday, and they had, if you remember the ho-hos that uh, Genentech would have, you know, Gilead had something similar where they'd have beers and barbecue on, you know, their Friday afternoon. So I interviewed all day on Friday and stayed for the barbecue to have a beer and chat further with people. And I think I flew back on a, on a red eye or, or the next morning. And I, I have to say I was blown away. I mean, I interviewed with John Martin, Norbert Bischoffberger, John Milligan, 
right? You know, I mean, all three, you know, and I was a, yeah. And I was a middle manager at the time. Right. And, um, and, uh, you know, there was Mark Perry was the CFO at the time and, uh, you know, Jeff Bird, who's now at Sutter Hill Ventures. So, I mean, this was a, a, you know, top tier management team. They had a vision for the future. They, um, he had as much interest in understanding me and how I thought and what I could bring to them um, as I had about learning about their vision. And it just, it felt like I, you know, like home, like, okay, this, this is the place I can get excited about coming to work for. And it's not too bad that, you know, I can get away from the cold in Chicago and, you know, experience the Bay area, you know, uh, as I was early, you know, in my life and my career. And so, uh, it was a, it was a fateful and 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 beautiful choice that I made uh, to to join Gilead. Now, what kind of position were you interviewing for? So it was a um, a strategic marketing role where they had uh, um, a product, a Defavir for HIV, which notably was the first product ever getting uh, who, that ever got refused uh, uh, for the treatment of HIV. It had some nephrotoxicity. But um, and, and the company probably wouldn't have survived if they didn't have the backup compound tenofovir, right, uh, to, to be a fast follower for HIV. Uh, but because the company had, uh, you know, was just staffed with all of these HIV experts, they basically said, look, um, we have two products that are in our pipeline. You can either take on this tenofovir and figure out the right positioning and, you know, the strategy for that product or – we have a defavir for hepatitis B where we found this signal and in a co-infected population. And, you know, we aren't sure if there's a market, how to develop this, you know, what, how should we construct the clinical trials? And, and so I said, you know what, let me take that product because I'm not going to add much, you know, expertise to the HIV knowledge that already exists in this company. But it sounds like the organization doesn't know a whole lot, you know, at that time, now they're considered experts across the board, but, but at that time, uh, they were still figuring out there weren't many products, uh, that had been approved for hepatitis B, uh, lamivudine, you know, 3TC had an approval, but it was a small market in the U S. And so my first year there was really, um, talking to experts in hepatitis B, figuring out what the company needed to do to position it the right way and, and ultimately how to construct the, phase three trials. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember coming back from a whirlwind trip of talking to experts around the globe, um, who had spent their lives in hepatitis B and coming back and describing this pre-core mutant, you know, um, E antigen negative E antibody positive population that was prevalent in Europe. And it just didn't make any scientific sense that they would be, E antigen negative, they would express the antibody, but yet they would be highly viremic and carry this disease. And I said, well, yeah, it's upwards of 50% in Southern Europe. And this is a big market. If we're going to do studies, we need to go after this E antigen negative, you know, pre-core mutant population. And I just highlight that because, you know, um, you know, Gilead became known as experts in, in infectious disease and, and, and hepatitis B, hepatitis C. But there was still a lot of learning to be done by industry. And for me, it, it showed that if, you know, um, a organization can set their mind to becoming experts in a space um, and they do the hard work of talking to the experts, you know, reading the literature, uh, really uh, doing what they need to be successful in that space, 
then over time, they become known as the experts. And that was a very formative experience for me that I was able to apply to other areas, right, that I was exposed to different technologies, different therapeutic areas. Um, and so, you know, that was an important role. I ended up moving up and on at Gilead. I actually had a little detour where I went to core therapeutics for a year, helped them launch Integralin. And then uh, it was a different cultural experience and it wasn't the best fit for me. And they, they really didn't have a long-term vision. Uh, they, they ended up selling the company shortly after uh, I left to go back to Gilead. This is often the case, companies that are looking to get sold versus companies that are looking to be independent. You, you and I have talked about this. That, that's right. Gilead that, that's wanted to be independent. To yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you work your way up uh, in a variety of positions. You moved uh, around the business side of the house. You did some uh, of this market research, medical affairs, business development even, um, end up becoming a, a vice president. I want to come back to something that you had said earlier, though, about talk, interviewing the experts and the physicians, uh, because you know a lot of people on the business side of the house uh, you know, there, there's a tradition of tension there between the R&D side and the, the business or marketing side. Scientists don't, don't like being told what to do by marketing people, <laughs> right? How, how did you um, how, how did you manage those relationships with, with the R&D side? Yeah, well, there, there's two things. Um, one, uh, um, you 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 couldn't survive in an organization like Gilead without knowing the science and understanding and engaging in a very thoughtful way uh, with the scientists. Um, and so in some ways, uh, it really was about, you know, honoring their expertise and knowledge and coming up with the right questions. It, it, there's, a, there's a nuance to making them appreciate the business perspective or the positioning in the marketplace um, and you have to meet them halfway, right? And so, you know, for, for me, it was not through the science that I was able to earn that credibility, but in the application of that science. And where, what is important? How do we turn this science into something that is valuable to a clinician that's going to prescribe a drug for a patient? And that is a different set of questions, Um and I think that is where the scientist starts to appreciate, right, that perspective. And they want to meet you halfway of trying to solve for that, right, you know, that key question. So you can get into a position where you're sort of exchanging information with the scientists. They know something, obviously, that you don't. But you've also put in the, whole, the, the time and effort to understand something about the patient population, the clinicians, and it, you can provide some value to them too. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the key, um, uh, I, I guess the, 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 the key inflection points for me was, um, and this may harken back to the interviewing physicians and what makes them prescribe a drug is usually take any therapeutic area and say, what are the leading products? Okay. You can look at the package insert. Okay. And that's an important starting point, but what were the studies that were supporting the claims in that package insert and going to the source articles of those key clinical trials. And it was learning how to read the, the definitive 
article from New England Journal or whatever journal it is and looking at, okay, what do they do? They describe the methods, right? They describe the design. They describe the baseline characteristics of the products. They, de they describe the endpoints that they were looking at. They have the tables and charts. And learning how um, that article was driven off of a specific set of design choices for that study originally and how that design of that trial yielded a set of data that led to that product being well-regarded, well-received in a marketplace. For me, that link became the gospel, right? You know, how do you design the right study that yields the right data set that will lead to a, you know, positive outcomes, approval of a product and positioning in the marketplace? Um, it all starts with that design. And that is my right mantra. That is why I'm doing Zontogeny. I think it all links back to product design, which links to the choices you make, whether it's a, a cell line experiment or an in vitro or a, a in vivo translational animal model or your phase two clinical study and what enriched population are you choosing? What's your inclusion exclusion criteria? But for me, that was the key moment. And I had to become expert at attacking these articles and learning how to do trial design based on, you know, um, that downstream right cascade that I described. What's the convincing, the persuasive experiment or, or the, the set of experiments? Or conversely, what's the weak spot? <laughs> what, what's the, the common objection that you hear in the clinical community? Like, well, this study turned out positive, but there's this, that, and the other thing not quite right. Right. And, and I think, I mean, I'm going to uh, uh, put this into almost philosophical camps, okay? There are those that you will find in industry who believe that you need to take a molecule, okay, and that the molecule will reveal to us, right, its inherent properties. And we have to take that data set that comes out of that molecule, and that's going to guide what to do with it. And that's going to guide the development. Okay. And there are those in the industry who believe that. Okay. And that it's very turnkey of what to do to elucidate those inherent properties. Okay. There's another camp though, um, that believes you actually do design a product <laughs> and a drug. All right. What is a drug? Okay. A drug, I mean, a molecule in itself is not a drug. A drug is, happens when you have information that attaches to that molecule. And while that molecule might have some inherent properties, right, that might confine what it can or can't do, the design of that product comes about with the experiments that you run that molecule through. And you can start to shape what that product looks like by the choices you make. And it, it, it compounds itself, right? You know, once you go down a fateful path with a certain set of designs early on, then you can only do so much with that product, right? And so I'm very fascinated with the design choices that one makes around a new molecule and how we can shape product designs. And actually, you know, uh, Steve Jobs talked a lot about this, right? Um, that, you know, he would describe it as a disease that people have, that it's the great idea is 90% of the work. And he would say, no, 
a great idea, you know, is, is 10%. It's the choices you make, the 5,000 things that you need to keep in your head, right? Uh, that are trade-offs or choices that you make that leads to the craftsmanship around a product. Now he's talking about product design as a consumer product and a hardware, software, et cetera. But I think that we don't have enough of that thinking in biotech that actually we, we do design products with inherent properties and we can guide the information that's attached to those products. It's really interesting to hear you juxtapose this. Um, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, kind of from the scientific side of things, the people who, there are people out there who would say, well, look at a great molecule, just uh, like say a Gleevec, <laughs> you know, that, that just comes along and it's so great scientifically, you can basically just set up a 1-800 number and this thing will sell itself. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, and uh, now there may be there may be some truth to that, but uh, I'm sure there was a whole lot of sales and marketing work too, and certainly with the subsequent products to you know design in some characteristics uh, based on that scientific finding uh, for say resistant patients, patients that develop resistance later. You know, maybe, maybe that's just one of of a, of a hundred different examples. Well, I, I'll put it a different way. I think that there are definitely those products that. Um, you'd have to be really incompetent to mess it up, okay, and, and and to not see that product get approved. And there are products that no matter what you do, and you could be the the, the best drug development team that the industry has to offer and, and the product will fail because of toxicity or, you know, or or or, or other factors uh that that you know will will their 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 fit their fate is sealed early on. But I believe the majority of the failures, if you say that 90% of products fail from a you know, lead optimized candidate to getting to commercial approval, I don't adhere to the, to the idea that technical failure explains that 90%. I think the majority of the failures uh, is based on design choices along the way. Um, and and the, the, the reason I say that is that you know, we, we, we simplify failures to say, well, you know, mouse biology is different than human biology. And even though we had this robust signal in the mouse model, right, it just didn't work in humans. And we rarely go back and deconstruct, right? Did we look at the optimal ranges of doses, right? Did we have the right formulation? Did we look at, were there endpoints that we missed that we, if we did the right experiment early on, we might've shaped the development differently. I mean, there are so many uh, uh, choices that are made, even like if you do a short-term phase two study and it fails, what if you dosed another three months longer? Would you have seen a signal and would have made the difference between a successful drug and a failed drug. And so I believe that there is technical failure, but I think the majority of that 90 plus percent failure rate has to do with um, the choices that are made around design from, from again, the, the early stages uh, before it's unrecoverable through, uh, you know, I'd say phase two proof of concept is the most critical one. And then you can guide phase three from the learnings from that phase two. Is your company interested in raising its profile among biotech industry leaders and in supporting quality journalism? Think about sponsoring the Long Run Podcast. I'm only allowing room for one or maybe two sponsors of this show over a year's time. I don't want to bombard readers and listeners with useless ads that intrude on your time and attention. 
When allowing someone to sponsor this show, I want to make sure that entity has something useful and constructive to say to biotech leaders. If you are that kind of organization and you are willing to be patient, sponsorship of the long run could be a rewarding experience. Ask me about it at luke at timmermanreport.com. Okay, now, Chris, I want to keep moving along through your journey. Celgene, you, you have a, a few years there at Celgene. You take a VP position. That was business development, right? Corporate strategy, which included M&A. Okay. And by this time, you're probably, what, 40? Uh, I think so, yeah. yeah. What were you hoping to accomplish there at Celgene, and what did you learn? Coming out of uh, Gilead, I actually left Gilead because I had a family emergency. I had to tend to my, uh, uh, my son, um, and uh, took about a year and a half off and was actually wondering if I wanted to do something different. <laughs> uh, and, and I was about 40 or do I, you know, re-entrench in biotech. And I was getting some calls for um, some, you know, not so high profile CEO jobs. And then Celgene called and I thought, wow, what an opportunity. And I had done deep diligence on Celgene as an acquisition target when I was at Gilead. So I kind of knew their pipeline. I knew their, you know, um, their products and their team and their, you know, uh, promise for, for future success. And, you know, I got a call and I thought, what an opportunity to work for another, you know, emerging, you know, you know, biopharma, learn from another culture, learn from another management team. Um, and it was supporting, you know, uh, Saul Bear, Bob Hugan, Dave Griska at the time was C- CFO. And, uh, and they all were excited to have somebody who had the experience from, from Gilead, but also some operational experience, you know, to help them think about their future. And I'd say it really refined my understanding that there's more than one uh, in, you know, uh, one set of ingredients for success. The culture couldn't have been more different than Gilead at the time that I joined them. And uh, it took me a while to adjust to um, and appreciate uh, kind of the Celgene, uh, you know, uh, approach to growth and strategy. And what, what was the key difference you observed uh, at that time? I mean, there's West Coast, East Coast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well, that, that was one in that mo- a lot of uh, Celgene being in the middle of New Jersey, a lot of the staff came from Big Pharma and, and Gilead was almost allergic to anybody who had Big Pharma on their resume. Um, but I think more importantly, you know, I'll, I'll give you my, my first experience was I, my first week at Celgene, I thought it was the most bloated, inefficient organization because, you know, every GNA function was like three times the size of what it was at Gilead, right? And, and Gilead was so hyper lean and hyper efficient. Um, I used to do this metric that looked at um, revenue divided by GNA as the operating efficiency of any commercial company because R&D is a choice. You can spend a lot or a little on R&D, but if you just look at revenues divided by SGNA and Gilead was, you know, eight to 10 and the next best companies were like 4.5 to four and big pharma was often 2.5 to three. <laughs> and, and so, so I, I didn't, I realized Those that the, the companies that, with the corporate jets, <laughs> Right, right, right. But, um, but, but, but also I realized that, you know, um, you know, Celgene was like number two on that, that list, right? Just Gilead was so out there as a, as a, uh, you know, anomaly in their efficiency. And, and I realized that Celgene was more willing to take risks on research. They were willing to 
acquire companies. Um, uh, and this accelerated even after I left with the George Golombeski, Tom Daniel, you know, kind of, you know, dynamic duo of doing more and more creative structure deals. But, but they were willing, uh, even, even before then, um, to really throw more against the wall, um, in clinical development. And they ended up hitting on more things than, than industry average and that you'd expect. And so I think I appreciated that and realized that Gilead, had to be too certain in their early days, and they weren't willing to overpay uh, in in business development. And they it was all about execution, and um, there was less room. And I think they've changed, and I think Celgene has changed to evolve maybe more uh, like Gilead. But um, but I think they didn't leave enough room for the serendipity and the exploratory nature, and uh, you know the these surprises that you might find that might unlock more value. And so I think I ended up developing a hybrid of the Gilead and the Celgene culture and what I tried to, you know, bring in and create it at Sarepta. Okay. So VP corporate strategy, you're working there with senior management, um, interesting work, Celgene's transitioning. Um, it's generating a lot of cash. So it generated a lot of possibilities for strategy in, in business development. Um, but now this, uh, now, now we'll talk about Sarepta because this was your first chance to become a CEO uh, or the one that really appealed to yep. you. Um, and I, I don't want to talk, we could talk the whole show just about your time at Sarepta. Right, sure. <laughs> uh, there's, it's been well documented. Um, but I, I really was, I remember this is when you and I first met, um, you would, you'd come out to the company was called AVI Biopharma at the time and it was trading for maybe a dollar a share. I mean, this was a company that yeah. was kind of running on fumes. Um, nobody knew about it. I mean, main labs in Corvallis, Oregon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I might've even written the phrase like this company was going nowhere fast. Uh, Antisense, nobody wanted anything to do with Antisense, morpholino <laughs> compounds. Right. Um, what was it, just real briefly, that appealed to you about this opportunity? I was skeptical, okay? Remember, Gilead was founded as an Antisense company, and John Martin made a conscious choice to get out of it, right? And so I was, I had even higher bar before I would jump to an Antisense company. But there were some uh, key investors uh, early on, independent, you know, high net worth investors, uh, and some folks around uh, the company that had done some digging on the technology, and they were convinced, right, that this was a uniquely differentiated chemistry versus all the other antisense approaches, phosphorothioate, you know, um, you know, more toxic, no therapeutic window. And so, it, it, again, I didn't see it intuitively at first, but I started to dig a little deeper on it, and I started to realize that um, just having the good technology isn't enough, and that's true for our industry. You really need to couple that with good drug development and good choices to get to the next level, right, of de-risking and, and value inflection. And I really believe that this company, which they had no, you know, uh, large institutional investors to speak of, no, they couldn't attract the top tier management. They didn't have that, you know, like the, the, the third rock pedigree VC behind it. It was a public company that was, you know, retail, you know, uh, investor driven. And I just believe that it was the perfect opportunity to show that I could take all that experience I had from Gilead and Celgene and I could actually produce something of value here. And so I knew it was a turnaround. I knew it wasn't going to be easy. I knew even just getting people's attention was going to be hard. <laughs> and you helped along the way, uh, Luke, with, with some of your writing along that. 
But, um, you know, again, the world changed when that small phase two data set, which is all the money we had and all the drug that we had, we had no manufacturing capacity. Uh, in 2012, when we were the, the top performing, you know, biotech, you know, uh, you know um, that year, uh, you know, by stock appreciation, um, you know, then I could raise more capital. I could start building out the, the, the framework of, you know, scaling up manufacturing, preparing for larger studies, you know, um, you know, trying to go for accelerated approval at the time, you know, seemed like the right idea. And I still stand by every choice, you know, I, I, I made there strategically. Um, and I think, you know, it was revealed later that it really came down to an internal struggle of the FDA and their embrace or, you know, um, uh, hesitancy to embrace accelerated approval in rare disease. And uh, like you said, we could do part two on Sorrento. Well, yeah, I, I think we could. And I, you, you and I have talked, and I, I actually disagree a little. I think that the filing on a 12-patient single-site study was a bit questionable, and it was questionable for the FDA to approve it on a slim data set. But, you know, re reasonable people can disagree on this. But really, I mean, you said that you're, you stand by your strategic decisions. If you could do one thing over is there anything that you've thought of that you, you would do over? Yeah. I mean, look, I, and when I say strategic decision, I, I think um, uh, I wasn't going to be the CEO that told the community that, no, you guys don't understand. I'm the biotech drug developer and, 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 and you guys have no right to think that this drug could be approved. And so, you know, it was a, it was a choice on transparency and a choice to, um, at least ask the question to the FDA. I never declared we're going to file and let's see how the FDA reacts. It was always only taking a step if the FDA approved it. But um, no, I, I'd say, uh, honestly, I learned more on um, the the political dynamics of being part of a, you know, public company, you know, as something became high profile, um, you know, how to navigate and how to make choices around you know, um, you know, the people you surround yourself with. And, and so I, I think, you know, I learned more about how to, um, uh, you know, taking away from it, uh, what choices can I make to be a better leader? Okay. Uh, and to, you know, um, find a way to communicate, you know, um, uh, you know, to staff, you know, to board, to investors, uh, where I was nose to the ground, it was all about, you know, the, the, the company and advancing the programs. And I probably didn't pay as much attention to um, the other soft factors and, you know, um, some of the dynamics that were, you know, swirling around, you know, that program. Uh, and so that that's probably where most of the lessons were learned, uh, as opposed to the strategic choices that were made. Um, you know, look, Luke, you know, some more individual than people that you, you, you may have clashed with. Yeah, yeah, you know. and just, you know, how, 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 how one deals with that. Yeah, yep. Okay, so now let's talk about Zontogeny because this, is, I think, is interesting. I actually um, remember, I think you, you and I met, uh, bumped into each other at a, at a Milken conference, um, and you were sort of, you had been working on this idea, it had been stealth, you weren't really talking about it, but you, you kind of gave me a heads up that, you're going to, you're excited now about a new opportunity. You had seen, I, I think, um, a gap in the marketplace that happened to match up very well with the things that you were good at and maybe uh, didn't depend on some of this public market facing kind of stuff that, you know, maybe caught, caused some heartburn when you were at Sarepta. 
what what how did you see the world and in, in, in your new role here at what became Zontogeny? Yeah, you know th- this this came about because uh, there were there were two main elements. Okay, um, literally the week I left Sarepta, <laughs> I think I counted three uh, reach outs from people I didn't know who said, "Can you help me with my company and my technology?" So these weren't you know executive recruiters saying, "All right, here's the next CEO role that you could take on," et cetera. But it was like, "Hey, I want your help as an advisor, board member." Can you work with me because I want to figure out how to make this a success? Okay, and um, and so that ended up over the course of that next year. I think I counted about seventy right solicitations before I even declared I was doing Zontogeny, right? And and so that was one component was I had no idea one um, uh, I guess how broad my network right was and how people were referring people to me for help and guidance. Um, and people who even, you know, just cold called me. So there was a lot of source of potential technologies and deals of people that needed help and wanted someone with deep industry experience. And then the other thing I was observing that really happened over the last five, you know, uh, to seven years was, you know, the, the top tier venture model was evolving, um, to something that I thought was becoming unrecognizable, which is the old way of thinking about a scientist or entrepreneur gets a meeting with a VC, they schedule a meeting in a conference room with a bunch of people sitting around and hearing the pitch. (laughs) They ask the entrepreneur to leave and talk about, oh, what do you think of the guy? What do you think of the technology? Should we invest in him or her and their company? And realize that actually more and more of these VCs were forming companies. They might, you know, call Bob Langer and ask him about his latest IP and pull that out of an institution and then start calling, you know, um, executives to form a team around or, or even lead that management themselves. And then the A round started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and then I also started seeing the technologies going earlier, earlier and earlier. (laughs) And it started to leave this gap of, um, an opportunity to partner with a true entrepreneur, first-time CEO that wasn't a marquee name from the industry, um, a middle-market investment strategy where you might just need uh, a product to get through IND enabling work in a phase one for ten million dollars, <laughs> and then raise the series B. Right, not fifty million, and and really focusing where we weren't trying to, um, you know, discover the next CRISPR platform, right? Where it does take tens of millions of dollars, maybe hundreds of millions and many years to de-risk a new platform. And so I started seeing the confluence of these gaps and realized um, that this middle market was disappearing, that you could probably cobble together half a million to two million from uh, friends and family or an angel or an angel network. Um, And you could do you know, a $50 million a round where, you know, you could be diluted out and take a salary as a, as a VP of biology, if you're a, you know, scientist and, and, you know, they wouldn't support you necessarily as CEO. And so that middle market of raising 10 to 15 million in a series A, I felt was more elusive, especially with, you know, a, you know, a strong kind of industry, you know, um, uh, status. And these um, are kind of opportunities that uh, might classically come out of academia. Like maybe you've got, um, 
uh, a passionate founder who um, has done some mouse experiments and maybe gotten a published paper in a top journal, but needs uh, someone or uh, an organization to do a whole series of de-risking experiments, design them properly so that they can create more value and, and become, you know, one of these more, more classic biotech startups, 10 million in, maybe it's, it's sold or partnered out for, you know, a nice three to five X return someday. That, well, that's exactly right. And I think there is a way to structure these deals that honors the founders or founding scientists where, you know, they can retain more equity than the models I was describing. And, you know, it appeals to them very much to be also mentored and advised. And, and this goes to the other, um, reason that I wanted to do this. And I, I appeal to my colleagues across the industry um, is that the gap we have in our industry is not um, a shortage of interesting technologies, right? Or robust signals and preclinical models that maybe deserve to be advanced. Um, and we're not lacking money, right? <laughs> Especially in recent years. Where we're really uh, lacking is the the, the, the drug development talent pool, okay, and that leadership to take those technologies, translate them into successful clinical development programs, right, um, and, and make it a win-win. So the investors win, the founders win, the patients win. And, and I think that the number one call I get to this day is who do I know who would be a good CEO, because if you think of your typical venture firm that has, you know, 10 new companies out of a, the, their latest fund, you know, they might be able to get an A-plus team, you know, if you're a Atlas or a Third Rock or a, you know, flagship on their first few companies. But you start to dilute the management talent when you're on company number seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay. Now multiply that times all the venture capital firms out there who are also looking for that A-plus talent uh, executive team. And frankly, if you like to work and you're used to, you know, multitasking, um, a good drug developer or good drug development team can manage a portfolio of companies or products, right, through that preclinical to clinical proof of concept phase. And I think we need to take more people who have that deep industry experience to lead their own aggregator aggregators and, and start to help on more than that single product company Right. Well, you know, and this is where you fit. This is where you fit in personally, right? Because you've been, uh, you have set up this ontogeny, as I understand it. You've explained this before to uh, have a whole portfolio of companies. You got something like, uh, you know, a, a modest amount of money uh, for your your entity itself, which uh, it contains you and and a small team that can work on a handful of what are our virtual companies or maybe proto companies? You're going to lean on a lot of CROs, right? Yeah. To, to yep. do a lot of this early stage work. And, and so, I mean, you might be the CEO. You, you can't do all 70 of these reach outs. <laughs> There's not enough time in the day, but maybe you can do what? Four or five simultaneously. Well, I, what, what I, yeah. So what I do is I'll, I'll take an executive chair role and, uh, I, I talk to each of our CEOs and, you know, we have maybe about not quite half the portfolio 
kind of uh, filled out right now. We're going to launch our second company probably in the next uh, few months. Uh, we launched our first company back in September in the, in the Crohn's ulcerative colitis space. But no, it's a, it's an active executive chair role typically or an active board role where, again, I'm getting involved with the uh, founder founders on those key strategic design choices, the selection of the right consultant service providers, et cetera, and, and really making sure that we design well and execute. That's what we're, that's what I'm going to obsess over. Uh, and, and yeah, I think, you know, we think eight to 10 is the right mix for, you know, um, before you cycle through and you, you know, you exit some of those with positive data, you know, and you move on, you know, to, to fill the pipeline. Uh, and then I've partnered also importantly with perceptive advisors, uh, which has a long history, almost 20 years of life science investing. They actually have the designation of being the top performing fund across all industries over that time period with about a 30% annualized return. But they've never uh, created their own uh, uh, venture, uh, you know, private fund. And so uh, I've partnered with them uh, to, uh, you know, to manage that. We can't, you know, talk, uh, you know, much about, uh, uh, you know, our plans for that because of anti-solicitation. Uh, issues, but you know we'll have uh, a mechanism through Perceptive to make sure that these companies are funded, um, and to you know really capture that efficiency, um, so that I'm not spending you know half my time raising money for each you know NUCO, and that I can spend my time working with the you know the CEOs on you know these drug development choices. Now, eventually, Luke, if you fast forward a year or two. We'll have a full management team that will look and feel like any biotech with a, you know, head of regulatory, a head of clinical operations, a head of preclinical talks, head of CMC quality, you know. And so we want to harness that, you know, uh, disciplined, functional management team so that I'm not doing it all by myself or with a group of consultants, but we're going to have a full-time staff uh, dedicated to it. Yeah, when we spoke a year ago, you said you raised, I think, the first $15 million or so from perceptive advisors, big, big hedge fund doesn't traditionally do a lot of private um, early stage investing. Um, but your, your plan was to put together a team. Now, I only see something like one other member of the team on your website. Last I looked, um, are, are, how many more people do you need? What are, who are the key yeah, people? Yeah. So, so what we wanted to focus, yeah. So what we wanted to focus on first was um, uh, making sure we had a mechanism to start deploying the capital on these series A. So we've done uh, one series A to date. Um, that's part of his ontogeny. We'll probably do our second one. Uh, I think um, I've been relying predominantly on consultants, service providers who would love to come on full time. But I think I, I don't want to make the same mistake I see a lot of small companies, which is you overhire, you hire too far ahead of the curve, and you have people who are getting big salaries, right? You know, and you're uh -huh. giving away equity in the company, and they don't have enough to do. So I learned from Gilead, and I learned that you know uh, I'm comfortable. Um, hiring when the work is here and, you know, we're being stretched and we want to, you know, bring on folks when we're busy. And uh, right now we're managing things pretty well with this incubation stage um, and focusing on, you know, the, the, the capital solution to fund these companies. And so, you know, stay tuned. I think you'll hear more in the, in the coming months, um, uh, which will bring more clarity around kind of our, 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 our kind of long-term vision of how, how these companies will operate and how Zontogeny will be staffed. Okay. You're keeping your head down. You're deep there in the weeds. You're not uh, making the rounds on Wall Street or seeing your name in the Wall Street Journal anymore. <laughs> um, how, how do you, um, 
measure your success on a year-to-year basis? And, and what do you think of as your real long-term goal? You know, it's funny. I, I feel like um, I can do that role and, and play that, that more visible face as an executive, but it's not what I enjoy. I enjoy the choices around drug development. And so for me, I'll be honest, there are two uh, uh, things that I want to be measured on, okay? Um, and, and, and by the way, any economic success should easily follow these two things, right? So number one, um, uh, I want to um, show that by choosing right and by obsessing over the design choices from preclinical through you know clinical proof of concept, that we can beat the industry averages. And that uh, if you have the right development talent uh, and you make the right choices, that we're not going to see or we shouldn't have to live with 90% failure rates. So, so if I fast forward 10 years, I want to show a consistent track record of beating industry averages. And I don't mean going from 10% to 20 or 30%. I mean, I, I think if we do this right, we should see greater than 50% success rates in phase two clinical proof of concept. I hope higher, but that that's my current goal. Well, this is part of the promise of the personalized medicine, precision medicine movement, by the way, but uh, that to, right. to improve the R&D productivity problem. But- that's right. And, and then the, the second one is just being a good mentor and creating the next generation of biotech CEOs and entrepreneurs. And that would mean a lot to be able to um, provide all the great mentors I've had. I've had a lot of them and I've learned so much from, you know, so many smart people across my career and, and in this industry uh, that if I can impart all of that wisdom to the next generation of leaders, that will be important to me. But th- those are the two measures. And if I can do that, then the, all of the other economic success and value creation that's attached and products to you know, patients will, will take care of itself. Maybe you can get one of these cushy gigs sitting on a bunch of boards when you're <laughs> ready to hang them up. I don't know if I'll ever be ready to hang it up, to be honest. I, I really enjoy working and it's the interaction with people and you know, that's the thrill. And it's like, I, you know, retirement to me is like an early death, right? It's like, so I, I don't know, I, I could change my mind in 10 years, but, um, you know, collecting a bunch of boards, I'll, I'm going to be sitting on a lot of boards, but it's going to be in active roles. I, uh, I, I, I don't know, I don't look forward to retirement uh, uh, is a better way to say it. It's quite a long journey for you coming from the kind of aimless uh, student to, you know, early stage drug development obsessive that you are today. <laughs> Well, well, look, look, thanks for the opportunity to share uh, some of the, the background and, and philosophy and kind of vision for, for Zontogeny. Thanks for joining me on The Long Run, Chris. All right. Thanks, Luke. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. And thanks for listening. Tell your friends about it on your favorite podcast app or on social media. And if you're interested in sponsoring the show and in raising awareness of your work among biotech leaders, send me an email at luke at timbermanreport.com. See you next episode.